Hello and welcome to the Flix Forum podcast where each episode we go back and we look at a Netflix original film in the order of release. However, today we have a very special episode where we're going to check out the 2022 action drama film Interceptor, which is directed by Matthew Riley and it stars Elsa Pataki and Luke Bracey. I think I've got them right. I'm Jesse and I'm here with MJ. How are you? I'm good. You definitely got Luke Bracey right. I can confirm that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I hope I got that right, but I probably didn't. But that's all good. Um, <laughs> we are going to spoil this film probably. So this is a brand new release that's uh, hit Netflix in the last week. A uh, bit of an Australian connection. So we thought we'd, uh, we'd get involved and, and, and do, this, do this show. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about this one. I haven't done a bonus. I know you've done a few solo bonus episodes. I haven't done a bonus episode with you since uh, since The Guilty came out with Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, so we do like to pick one that we think might cause a bit of discussion. And obviously we picked this one mainly because of its Australian angle. Um, Matthew Riley being a very well-known Australian author. Uh, the cast and crew smattered with Australians filmed in Australia. So it was uh, good for us to get behind this one. Exactly. So we start our show with the Fast Flicks, where we do a quick little summary of what the film is all about. What's your Fast Flicks for Interceptor? I have to say, this was this was kind of a difficult one to do a little one-liner on. Um, so I've just gone with uh, one woman stands in the way of Russia sparking nuclear warfare on the US. Good. I like it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. It's difficult. <laughs> I said um, an experienced army officer must save the world from extinction on a remote missile stopping station. <laughs> i tell you what, I have to, I didn't do the research. I have to assume this whole idea around Interceptor and the, the bases that they have is real because uh, that was, that was a good thing to learn. Yeah. There's definitely got to be something out there that, uh, that the, the world's got ready in case something like this did happen. Yeah. The first few minutes where there's just like some text on the screen, I'm like, this is interesting. Like, I, I didn't know this was a thing, but yeah, of course I would. It's a big text dump to start off with. And Matthew Riley's <laughs> novels, they often do that to start off with. It gives you a big um, big dump at the start to sort of set the scene. So, uh, yeah. Well, what, <laughs> well what, he did it again. I thought it worked. Yeah, it did. What, what did uh, you learn about this film and how it was, came to be? Yeah, I'm going to keep it pretty brief here. Um, as, we, as I said, Matthew Riley is a very highly acclaimed, best-selling Australian author. Um, he has never really made the foray into, into films, but loves his films. So he began writing the screenplay for Interceptor in 2017, and the, the script's action took place predominantly on one set. Um, he basically wanted to ensure that the film's budget wouldn't go over $15 million, um, you know, to allow him to to jump in on as a director on his first film and I guess keep it somewhat straightforward. Um, so Stuart Beatty, who's, who's another Australian screenwriter, um, he was brought on board after Riley sent him a copy of the script. Beatty read a few pages and, and basically said, yep, love it. Can I rewrite it? And uh, Riley was like, go for it, mate. And uh, that was that. So Beatty's got the, got the links in Hollywood. Um, so he shared the script with producers, basically, mentioned that Matty Riley intended to serve as the director. Um, got a little bit of pushback on that, which you can absolutely understand. Um, eventually got the gig as, as director and the film was greenlit by, by Netflix. Um, Elsa Pataki was signed on to perform as the lead character who we saw. Um, she 
I didn't notice at the time, she's married to Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth uh, served as an executive producer on the, uh, on the film. Took place, filming took place in New South Wales, in Australia. New South Wales doing some doing a bit of stuff at the moment with, uh, with the, the visual arts, I guess you could say, in, in particularly with, uh, I, I have a one-year-old at home, so I do watch a lot of kids' <laughs> stuff and the amount of stuff that says produced by New South Wales government, Screen Australia. So um, they shot it there over a period of 33 days. Filmed was uh, filming began on the 29th of March 2021. Had a short theatrical release in Australia um, on the 26th of May, and then it released a week later on Netflix worldwide on the 3rd of June. And that is how we got Interceptor. That is an excellent summary. Uh, I, I think they possibly spent about six million dollars just on promoting this one over the the few weeks uh, in the lead up to it as well. So uh, did they really? Bit of a spend, bit of a spend on um, getting this one out and about, which and that's obviously Netflix worldwide. So worldwide, yeah, probably probably not much really when you think about it. Uh, the the thing that we started this when we started this podcast, we'd often talk about how we don't get a lot of Netflix numbers, um, and you know they they keep their their viewership very viewership close. numbers, yeah, yeah, sorry, viewership numbers. They keep their their viewership numbers very close to themselves, but obviously the last uh, six months or so. That they've got their their Netflix, they're very uh, open with their numbers, uh, which which is good to see. So it, it was nice to get a little bit of an idea about how this film went in the first you know couple of days because from their their global um, statistics, so their their weekly summary was from the thirtieth of May to the fifth of June. So they they take all of the Netflix viewerships across the world, and obviously this came out on the third of June. So this only accounts for three of those days of release, but mm. Interceptor had thirty five point six million hours watched um over those three days which which is a lot of time and it was number one in australia and new zealand over those three days and also hit the top 10 in 93 countries around the world so netflix wouldn't be too um you know disappointed in this that that's pretty good for a, a little film by a you know directorial debut uh, <laughs> not bad not bad i still like the idea of them really promoting their new films you know, good or bad, as like six million dollars is is not. I mean, yeah, I guess it's worldwide, but it's not a small budget to promote a film by any means. Um, the idea of, especially the world we live in post lockdown, the idea of a big film uh, release is still really appealing, and I don't care anymore if that is on a streaming service or it's in the cinemas. I'm I'm still excited when a new film comes out, and if they can pump things up to make it feel like that, then I think there's still a big appetite for it, and uh, those numbers are. Those numbers are pretty good. Yeah. Uh, if, if we're going by our list of Netflix original films, this is the 544th Netflix original film. So <laughs> we haven't even hit That's 200 insane. on our show. So it's crazy how many how many uh, films are put out there. The tagline, did you see the tagline for this one? Oh, I don't think I did. The tagline for this one is the world's last defense. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's it kind of works. It kind of works. Uh, translations for this one around the world in Egypt, Israel, and the United Arab Emirates. It's called Interceptor Mission. So it just adds the word mission in. In Hungary, it's called The Capture. In Taiwan, mm. it's called The Ultimate Interception. And in Thailand, it's called Interceptor Missile Warfare. So all, uh, <laughs> all, little, all little plays on, on those words. I'm all right with all them. Yeah, they're all good. All right, what are the, what are, what's the consensus on this one? Critics and audiences, what are they saying? Oh, and this is this is also weird for us because we often 
you know, we're going through movies in chronological order. So we're sort of sitting back in 2019 where we've had two, two or three years to mull over titles for, for an audience. You know, we're, we're getting these numbers after a week of, of it being released. So it's sitting at a 4.5 out of 10 on IMDb with 10,000 ratings. 10,000 ratings in a week. Not bad. Um, 2.2 out today? of 5 on Letterboxd. That's gone up a little oh, bit. Sorry, no. I look, yeah. I did it yesterday. Yes, sir, yeah, it's gone up. Good. Sorry, sorry, what, what is it now? What is it now? No, no. Like, you've gone up from when I looked, so that's excellent. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. 2.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Uh, nearly three and a, or about three and a half thousand ratings there. So I, you know what? They're, they're very low scores. It's not, yeah. it's not, they're not loving this movie. Um, but as we've seen with a lot of Netflix movies, the amount of eyeballs is what's important to them. And you know what? There's probably a ton of people that are watching this movie and they're not the people that are on Letterboxd and IMDb and rating mm-hmm. movies. They just sit there and they, they watch it and they enjoy it. There's, there's still room for that. So Rotten Tomatoes as well. Not very positive. It's at 45%. That's on uh, 33 reviews. And the audience had it at 50%, so a little bit higher, and that's on more than 100. So everything that we've looked at there pretty much says it sits about the halfway mark. Um, of, uh, so not on the horrible spectrum of really, really low, but sort of sitting there in the, the middle mark of some people probably like it and some don't. Yeah, yeah, I think maybe a bit below middle as well. Well, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Similar to what you said, this is when I jumped on to watch it. Number one ranked trending movie on Netflix and I think there is something in that often when I jump on to see the, the trending movies there are either new ones or new ones to Netflix and this was number one which you know felt felt big felt promising we actually discussed you and I um, a few weeks ago that when we heard it had an Australian release in cinemas like do we do we go watch it in the in the movies and um, do our first Flix forum cinema experience um, and I'm glad we didn't <laughs> this I don't think there's any surprise that this this is a bad movie. Um, it's it's like a '90s B-grade action movie, which kind of at the time was sort of fun and ironic. Um, you know those ones that are just really really cheesy in in a fun way when you watch them. They're a rare breed these days. You don't see many of these kind of movies these days, and I, I definitely didn't hate it because it was just kind of fun and and like bizarrely bad. But I think the sad thing is I don't think that is what. Matthew Riley was intending to make when he made it. Um, I think as soon as you can lean into the fact that this is dialed up on the on the cheese and the cringe, then it's it's kind of not a bad watch, but it is a bad movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I really didn't know how to take this movie either. I, I think, like like you mentioned, Matthew Riley's been flogging his social medias with you know the number one trending film and all that sort of stuff, and he's really happy with with the numbers that he's got. Uh, but Obviously, if you look online through some of the criticisms, uh, you know, probably worthwhile to, to look at because, yeah, I, it, it was pure entertainment, but it was so poorly written and some of the performances were so bad that it was like it was really hard to take it seriously. So uh, it's still fun. <laughs> I have fun I, uh, yeah, I've you watched <laughs> those movies back and I'm like those, those 90s movies and they're exactly the same where you're like, oh, is this... Are we being serious here or have you just not got it right? But it's kind of fun. Like you sort of feel for the actors because they've got nothing to work with. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I, there's a lot of negative reviews out there on it. But I, it's kind of hard to hate it. There's like there's like a, a charm to it in a way. Um, so it's, it's, it's a weird one. Oh, well, this is where we talk about the characters and it's pretty hard to uh, talk about many of these, I guess, in uh, any depth because they're pretty... Uh, by the line sort of characters but what, what do you want to talk about 
Yeah, because they don't have any depth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I had a lot of trouble too. So this is Captain JJ Collins, who is our main protagonist. She is, you know, bona fide hero. If this film got a cult following, you'd be seeing bloody figurines of her everywhere. And she's a she's a goddamn hero, but I, I don't know much about her. So I've I've gone along the lines of her and her dad kind of had this, I can't actually remember the exact line, but it was along the lines of keep fighting. That's kind of their mantra, right? Don't never stop, keep fighting. And I guess she's almost blindly admirable in her work, um, you know, w- within the army, despite history she's had with basically sexual harassment in the army and, and you know, never being appreciated for what she actually does because she's a woman, so to speak, to still persist with this, you know, um, to still persist working with them and doing the work that she does and, and do it, you know, regardless is pretty goddamn noble. Um, she's obviously very accomplished as a, as a Marine. Um, she's wildly proud and, and bizarrely patriotic for a country that seems to have really let her down. But yeah, realistically, I had a lot of, trouble pinning her down otherwise i think she's a dissect i don't actually think of her as a real person anyway yeah i i think the easiest way for me to put together everything you said is she shows perseverance um she she continues to commit to what she's known what she does through her dad through the achievements that she's made and she's courageous too i think that having a positive female representation on the screen isn't necessarily a bad thing um, it would be nice to have seen a bit more depth, I guess, though, a little bit more um, understanding to where, how she's got to where she's at, rather than some of those, like some of those flashbacks showing the, the troubles that she's had where so, like you mentioned at the start, very 90s, like that's the sort of stuff that we'd, we'd see um, in those flashbacks. But I think given a lot of dialogue that probably was cringeworthy as well, which didn't help with wanting to, I mean, there wasn't a moment in this film that I didn't want her to succeed. You, you're on her side. There was no no question about that. But that maybe comes from the idea that the villain or Alexander Kessel uh, was just so ridiculous on the other side. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's a good good segue into Alexander Kessel, I suppose. Um, I actually thought Luke Bracey was all right, considering the circumstances he was under um, with his character. Because the character just doesn't add up for me. Um, he seemed like, he seemed like he would have worked better doing a, a, a similar sort of crime, but on a, on a smaller scale, like maybe infiltrate a company for doing immoral or dangerous work that he didn't agree with. And not this big international scale where he gets his face out there and, and he's more or less trying to destroy one of the most powerful countries in the world. Like the country that he grew up in served in the country where his family lives. He just wants to kill them all. And, and he is kind of a smart, charismatic dude. And it just didn't add up to me that this is where he was going. Um, I guess you could describe him as, in his own words, as a product of a failed society uh, that consistently rewards money, ignores everything else. But then it didn't make sense that he is offering money to people to help him. So he's trying to get these people out of this society by offering exactly what the society that he hates is offering. I don't know. None of it made sense to me. Yeah, I think I completely agree. To have a villain that is trying to do something that's morally right, you probably get on board a bit more and it's a bit more believable. But as you mentioned, yeah, yeah. But then to have him, you know, 
still chasing that cash when money is the thing that he says is the problem with the world. It just didn't make sense. And it just didn't give you the ability as the audience to be like, I'm completely understanding where you're coming from. So I can show a little bit of empathy towards what you're doing because you don't, because all you really get from this guy is he's had these daddy issues, obviously, and had everything given to him on a plate. So you get that background of cool. He understands the, the negativity at times of, of money and things like that. But you know, I think, what do they call him? A psychopath. <laughs> I wouldn't even call him a psychopath. I just call him a, a poorly written character that doesn't have an arc that should be proper, that isn't properly uh, discovered or shown. <laughs> it's it's so true. He, he, he legitimately contradicts himself in this entire film. Um, and th- that doesn't work. And I made the call somewhat in jest about Thanos. Thanos is a character who's got his own really strong morals about what he believes in. And as an audience member, I'm like, oh, I don't really agree with the idea of getting rid of half the world so that there's more resources for, for the people that are left. But I, I get it. Like, I get where you're coming from. And I, I kind of appreciate that you've, you've thought about it and you're not just doing evil for the sake of evil, which 90% of movies do do. And that's how you got to make a good character. And this is, this is probably the, one of the worst ways you can make a villain where you're just like, ah, I don't even know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And as I said, I thought Luke Bracey did all right considering the circumstances he was under. Because I kind of like really tried to believe him and thought that I was missing something because he was doing a good job, um, but I wasn't. No, you just need him to be pure evil or yeah, have some sort of arc. Yeah, I agree. Uh, who else, any other characters that you want to talk about? Well, it is hard again, but I do want to mention Raul Shah. Um, I mean, what more do we know about him other than the fact that he's a nice man who who does important work and he's got a family. That's what we know about him. Um, <laughs> we discovered that he is capable of more than he thought he was. But even this just feels like such a one-dimensional character that we're supposed to just sympathise with and care for when he sacrifices himself. And uh, yeah, that's a bit cheap. Yeah, it's, it was literally just like, cool, we've set him up as this tech dude. He's got a family, so you want him to survive. The kids gave him this turtle. Uh, and then, you know, needs to grow some balls, grows the balls and dies. And that's, that's the, that's <laughs> his, his story. <laughs> but you, and you like him. So you're like, Oh, that's a sad part of the movie. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> um, hopefully, hopefully our protagonist can win now because there's more on the line that yeah, like, this is the, not dissimilar <laughs> with, um, it's just like the throwaway character that they were like, cool, he's got kids. So we're not going to kill him off, but we do kill him. So surprise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, I was thinking that I'm like, oh, he's not dead because we didn't actually see him die on screen. Um, we just heard the gunshot or whatever, but and it's, it's very similar with, with Beaver or Beaver Baker. And this is what annoys me as well. I, I'd love it if um, Alexander Kessel had these real like-minded people working with him, but Beaver was just like a disgruntled racist who kind of missed out on opportunities because other people took it off him when he didn't deserve them anyway. Um, he's just the uh, the asshole Patsy who has zero redeeming qualities and exists in this story so that we can feel gratification when he's killed by the protagonist. That is literally why he's there. It was like Matthew Riley sitting here in Australia going, hey, I'm writing an American story. How do I put a, you know, like a make America great again character into the film? <laughs> oh, you know, make them not respect women. Uh you know, they feel let down by the system, can't deal with immigrants, uh, all these things that, you know, you just categorise from a faraway perspective. Cool. That's the character that we've got. It's so true. And I appreciate <laughs> yeah. that he's played by an Australian, um, Aaron Glenane, Australian. So it's not like he's actually somebody. This guy's really playing a character. And I appreciate that, that no one actually, I'm sorry, there would be people like this in the world, but um, yeah, this didn't feel like he can get a typecast because these other roles are very 
different. <laughs> I was just going to mention the dad, um, played by Colin, like uh, JJ's dad, Colin Frills, almost unrecognizable. That, that was some of the worst prosthetics I've seen on a face. Um, anyway, that was, that was all I had to say. I, I don't know whether I want to mention this or whether it's important or not, but it did throw me that um, JJ, very heavy European accent. Her father, very, very American. You get the assumption that like he met his wife in Spain, um, but they lived in America is, is kind of the vibe that I got. Like this girl grew, grew up in America, um, but she was very, very European. It just, again, it's, it's only a little thing that uh, takes you away. All right. Uh, Matthew Riley, we've sort of touched on him already as a well-known author in Australia, feature debut. Any, anything that you want to include about Matthew Riley? Well, one thing I learned that I didn't know is is that he is a huge fan of Hollywood blockbusters. He owns several movie props. He's got a life-size statue of Han Solo in, in Frozen Carbonite. He's got a golden idol from Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's got a DeLorean from Back to the Future. I think when he was younger, his, his, got, his dream was to, to be a, a film director. Uh, and he used to sort of shoot things as a kid and I think when he turned 19, he kind of realized that maybe it might be a little bit easier for someone with no experience to get into writing before trying to get a budget for a film. And he became a very accomplished author. And, and this has kind of almost been his, his life's work leading up to getting these opportunities. Exactly. And his books are very much like your Hollywood action blockbusters, the, the structure they follow and the ridiculousness of, of a lot of the, the action and sequences. Um, Definitely tie in with that love for Hollywood. Uh, I, I told you the story well, none of them have really been made into movies, though. True, exactly. Yeah. Have I told you the story when I met him? Uh, you know what? I think Probably. you have, but I, I don't remember it, so remind me. Yeah. Uh, so I played play basketball. So, you know, played basketball. Ended up in hospital after the basketball game. Split my head open. Had to get my eyebrows sort of glued back together. Oof. And then <laughs> next, next day, I got organized to go, and he was doing a, a book signing. So I went along to the book signing and that, that was the vivid memory of, uh, he was just like, what's happened to your face? Um, but real <laughs> down to earth sort of guy. I mean, it's probably just an easy conversation point, but it was, um, it was a nice thing to get a book signed. He might have uh, written a character about you at some point that you needed True. to dissect a bit. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's talk about some scenes. Are there any scenes in this one that you enjoyed? I, I, not many, but I, I kind of like one of the first action scenes with that big guy in the in the hallway where she ended up stabbing him with the gun. I thought the um the choreography of that fight was actually pretty good. It wasn't overdone. There's nothing I hate than a fight that lasts like nine minutes and it's just like back and forth and oh he should have probably died from that hit, but no, he's back up. Like this was actually pretty good and it was a really cool kill. Really cool kill, stabbing someone with a gun. And I appreciated that it got called out later on. Like, hey, you stabbed him with a gun. I've got that. That's my first one as well. Gun in the eye. Good. <laughs> yeah. Um, sadly, the only other thing that I'm going to mention, the things that I, I actually liked, as I said, this film was like, you know, enjoyable enough to watch on a, this film sucks kind of level, but Chris Hemsworth stuff, I didn't know he was going to be in it. So that was a kind of nice surprise, but you know, what's really bad is that he actually stood out. Like he was playing this like joke role, really just popping in from time to time. But he stood out. Like, that's that's how bad the rest of the film was. It's almost like these scenes probably weren't part of the original, but we thought, but he comes on as an EP. He's like, yeah, I can do something if you want. It's like, oh, we'll just chuck you in. You know, you, you're working in a TV store, just figuring out all this stuff as everyone else hears it. And he was good and he stood out. And that's how bad the rest of the film was that that stood out. So 
Um, have to mention it as a as a film fan watching it. It was it was good to see him. Surely it was like some downtime in between filming Thor, and they're like, "Cool, we'll just set you up in a in one room. We'll take a couple of shots and we'll chuck them into the movie." Oh, his wife's there. He's an EP on it. He, he spends well, a lot of time in Australia, so he's probably yeah. They live most of the year in Byron Bay, so um, yeah, yeah. He would have been in and about. Uh, he's great. Yeah. He's such a good Australian advocate. I agree. I uh, what have I got? So yeah, the gun in the eye. I think there was this line that um to Kessel he goes um, I've seen you in the shower and can see why you're obsessed with missiles <laughs> I, I, I laughed at that I thought that was quite funny <laughs> one of the, didn't see that coming nah, one of the one of the lines that worked me um, <laughs> what else is there I think the the, the, the trophy or the, the the chick the kid's done with the trophy <laughs> and it looked like she was like vomiting cheese <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious <laughs> it was like that it was like that um you know, cylinder cheese, the spray, spray. cheese. Yeah, yeah. Um, the decapitation, didn't say that coming. That was pretty like, whoa. No. That, that, that was There were some uh, good kills, weren't there? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I thought the um, Collins, when she was doing the one arm across the bars, I thought that was very impressive. Super impressive. It was. Uh, it was impressive. I think that's the, uh, that's what they want the film to be remembered by. It's the poster yeah. and yeah. yeah. Good move. All right. What are some things that uh, you didn't like in this one? Well, I was I was really battling through the first really clunky ten minutes, um, and all this stuff you know proved to be true. It had really rushed character backdrops. There was stale stereotypes. But when they said when they were trying to figure out what was going on, and they said if this was real, the Pentagon would have called us. And then the phone rang. I was just like, okay, <laughs> okay, this is the movie. This is what we're watching. We're not even going to pretend that this isn't King of Cheese. So um, that sucks, but it sort of it sort of foreboded what was going to happen in the film. I didn't like every time that she taunted them or swore at them or said this big line. It was just so awful. It's like she gave them a finger or she dropped the F-bomb and it just it never fit. It was bad and just didn't work. Um, I mentioned before how it, this is probably not a scene as much as it is like just the character, how he basically hated the fact that money got continuously rewarded, but then the whole thing was based on the fact that money was there, but we've already spoken about that. I didn't understand. So when they first broke through into the room from the bottom, which would have been a huge effort logistically to get up there and cut open that thing. But then we find out at the end, there's just like a, a thing in the roof. <laughs> Why didn't they go for that one? Because it's very... <laughs> Very easy to get up to the roof. That seemed like a massive, massive flaw in the in the overall story. Um, you mentioned the one-handed monkey bars. I was also impressed with that. And I get the physical exertion that comes from the back of it. But for her to lie down for like 30 to 40 seconds when everything was on the line afterwards, so she finally crawls back up into it, and then she just lies there. <laughs> it's like a minute to go until the whole world's going to blow up, basically. And she just, she just like, I'm, I'm cooked. I think you'd be able to find something. You know? <laughs> so that was just like, oh, crap, we've got her there too early. We need, we need her to be able to push it when there's 0.1 of a second to go. So um, that was stupid. And the final fight, you know, plus, you know, Alexander's death was just awful. At one point, he just like stopped fighting and just let her like hit him and stuff. And then, and then the line from the guy in the submarine, what about the woman? Your choice. Like, this is our, our protagonist is going to decide whether she lives or dies because some bloke who we've never even seen in the whole movie, just like, nah, she can live. That's that's what the movie's predicated on. I thought it was awful. Um, so that was a terrible, terrible ending. 
It also bothered me, though, that her dad survived. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> especially with Rahul still dying. Like, I would have been yeah. like, oh, you know what? We actually found him. He had a gun wound, but he was all right. It just didn't, it just didn't feel right. Like, uh, I don't know. That's me. Good. Yeah, I, I could go on and on and on. So I had to, like, just cut this list down. <laughs> I thought all the hand-to-hand combat scenes were pretty ordinary. Uh, I did not enjoy any of them. I just thought they were all, like, it was just so, it was like, cool. Got to remember that I put my left hand here, my right hand here, yeah. kick here. It was just looked very, very uh, clunky. I guess is, is a word. But to, then the kills were good. <laughs> yeah, but then the kills are good. Yeah, I have the Hemsworth character. I think one little cameo is good, but I feel like they overused it <laughs> so much. Like, especially and there's one in the post credit scene as well. That was just a complete waste of time. Yeah, it didn't add anything. Like, it's just like give it once, cool. Oh, Hemsworth, Hemsworth's on the screen, and oh, we'll just cut back to him all the time. Um, no, I, ne- I needed that. Okay, I'm sure I'm glad. Um, <laughs> when when her dad, her dad uh, JJ's dad, was kidnapped, and he's like doing that line you mentioned that you know never stop fighting, <laughs> and he sort of gets dragged off, and then she's just sitting there crying. I, I had a good laugh at that. I thought that's horrendous. And then uh, when Beaver and um, Shah, they're sort of. He's trying to switch all the buttons or click all the buttons and Beaver's got the gun to him and he's like, you know, you don't have to do this. You're not a murderer. And he's like, you're right. I'm a fucking patriot. And then he shoots. That <laughs> 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 uh, was so bad. Um, that game theory specialist dude who is like that nerd and he's like, there's only oh, a 14% yeah. chance of this happening. And then like that smug uh, shot back at him at the end. I like, hated that too. You're right. That was horrendous. Cool. Yeah. Um, 40%, eh? <laughs> um, the fridge. Just the, the fridge being used throughout his film. I was like, oh, God. Uh, you sort of touched on both of these already, but the Russians just coming out of the submarine at the end. Like, it was just, <laughs> just laughable. Just the rising up uh, and and the hospital scene. I agree. The the dad's being alive was just ridiculous. But then that pool, the, the camera pulls out. <laughs> and then you see all the flowers in the room. Oh, I was like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, Good. Uh, what were some themes or some ideas that this one was uh, trying to promote? Because it was trying to say an awful lot. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much really got across. I think there's something ugh, sacrificing everything for the greater good. You know, she genuinely let her father die to, to save her country, which tough decision. It sounds silly. Tough decision, but probably what you got to make. I think there's obviously some commentary around the idea that our society does reward money. And whether that's something that's impacting the development and growth of, of great countries or parties, um, I I know these ideas were conveyed by the main villain, but as I said, he's portrayed by a pretty charismatic and intelligent guy. So there's merit in these ideas. I, I, I think as much as he was flawed in so many ways, you know, we do want to talk about the fact that maybe we shouldn't be rewarding money more than we do, but it's, don't know the answer around that, but it, I think it's good commentary there. What have you got? Uh, yeah, like same you know, money makes the world go round, I guess, a little bit. Um, you know, what what's a hero too? Like I think Collins, she's a, she's a hero. She's oh, <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Um, there's a little bit too of that, like you tried to chuck in a bit of the, the Me Too stuff as well. We've got the sexual harassment and strong female, um, like some of those really blatant lines uh, was it all of us girls are really proud of what you did it's happened to a lot of us and then um you know if you're gonna kill me just kill me no mansplaining uh so that were very very blatant can i just there. say though obviously very and 
obviously very strong female protagonist. The president of America was a female. So it's a very important topic. It kind of bothered me that within like the first three minutes of her fighting someone, they took her shirt off and she had to be in a tank top for the rest of the film. I like that. That was like, well, why are we doing this? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, anyway. And that sort of leads a little bit to like the idea of representation too. We've got like a Spanish lead. You've got a female president, the Hindi sidekick. Um, there's a black, there's an Asian. They're all secondary characters. That's so good to see a mixing mixing pot of characters on the Very screen too. Um, and last thing, I guess, a little bit of like you know, capitalism. Go America. Um, go America. You know, immigration. It's all sort of being criticized a little bit. You know, the idea of immigrants taking jobs and not everyone equal through money. So it's interesting to have this commentary from an Australian. Um, but obviously... He was putting this together for a, a worldwide release, more so. 100%. Yeah, he knew his audience. Yeah. Uh, what did you take away from this one? Yeah, I mean, everything we're talking about. Very, very cheesy film. Very cringy script. Which is, you know, the guy's a writer. <laughs> I mean, it, that, it doesn't translate. I mean, writing books and writing, writing for film is very, very different. Um, it feels like the movie that would be rife for uh, for Paul Shearer and Jason Manzukas to dissect on how did this get made. They would have a lot of fun with this film, um, which also makes me think it'd be a really fun film to watch with a group of mates um, with the right mindset of let's let's have a bit of fun with it. So um, I did also, you know, obviously we just said it's a very American film, very American story, but I do love the Australian representation that was throughout, whether it's overt or not. But I love it's just it's so great to see Australians getting roles in these kinds of films. So for me, uh, I guess, you know, they don't, they specifically, the Russians aren't the villains in this. Like they could quite easily have made the Russians the villains in this, but hell, they're the ones with the missiles to destroy the world. <laughs> so why include them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what well, they could have been an unnamed, uh, exactly movie, right. Which they did in, uh, if anyway, if you've seen the new Top Gun film, uh, they specifically, the enemy was unnamed in that, but this one it was like, no, the Russians have actually got the weapons. They're just not the bad guys, though. <laughs> yeah, for no reason. They just, yeah, I, th- I thought that too. I thought that was because I was like, okay, this is going to be a thing versus Russia, but it's the like, Russians, no, yeah. nah, they're getting support from this American dude. Maybe when, yeah, when this was made, uh, the 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 big things that like obviously Netflix isn't in Russia anymore, so maybe they could have uh, changed up a little bit in post production. Uh, this is like Die Hard in the Ocean. <laughs> I think there's so many one-liner cliches in this that uh, I'm surprised because Stuart Beatty, like he wrote Collateral. <laughs> that is mm. such a good film. And then for him to come along and go, I, I would hate to have seen the original script. Like if, if, this is what, <laughs> if this is what he did after he'd fixed it, after Matthew Riley had finished with it, what was it? What sort of a, a state was it in? Um, to start with? Uh, very, very. There's only so much you can do though. Um, like, as I said, like, if you're rewriting a script, you're not the one necessarily who's who's adding depth to the characters. And if you've just got these really one-dimensional characters, he's probably just trying to clean it up and make sure it flows properly from a from a film perspective, as opposed to you know adding too much. Yeah, uh, and you mentioned this before about the idea of almost seeing it with a group of people. I've at the moment uh, we've been looking at Australian stories with, with one of my classes at school. So I thought this was, you know, a brand new release. That's a, an Australian film. I thought we'd had a look at this and it was nice to, to hear the laughter at certain times with some of the lines and sequences in this film with a, a group of uh, teenage kids, just, uh, you know, it, it's just good to see. <laughs> so they bought in, they bought into it, not knowing that like, you're not supposed to laugh in this moment, but it's pretty funny. Yeah, it was like a it was like a comedy for them. <laughs> That's good. That's good to hear. 
All right, IMDb. <laughs> did you jump on to check anyone out? I didn't. No one else I was watching, but afterwards I did have a look at basically, you know, all the as many cast members as I could just to see if they were Australian or not, and uh, a lot of them were. Yes, exactly. I didn't go on. So questions. Did you have any questions that you wanted to ask? I know you're a bit of a Matthew Riley fan uh, in terms of his books. Yeah. This is obviously his first, you know, jump into um, directing films. Are you disappointed with this? <laughs> from what it could, you know, what you expect from him? It's it's got his hands all over it. Like if you wanted yeah. to see a Matthew Riley film, this is this is what you'd expect, I guess. Um, okay. Because it's exactly like his books. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, exactly like the book. So I guess. All right, there you go. A fan, you can't you can't really be disappointed. Because <laughs> we, yes, we have to um, say, obviously, this wasn't a, this wasn't a book. He he wrote no, this yeah. specifically for the screen. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's. I haven't read a lot of the. He wrote this the series, the Seven Ancient Wonders, which is sort of like a Indiana Jones style sort of series. And I read the first few, and I haven't read the last few, but they're quite enjoyable if uh, if you're interested. But I don't know. Back in high school, it was sort of the the cool author to to read. Um, mm. Uh, the only thing I like the seals, the, the seal team, the army team. Why were they so slow? That was <laughs> where, that, where that was concerning to me as well. Yeah, yeah. I thought the exact same thing. Um, yeah. but I mean, there's a lot of things we can question about this. <laughs> we really want. <laughs> all right, let's 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 put this one all together and come up with our final thoughts. Give it a rating out of five. What are your final thoughts? Yeah, look, this. I mean, this is this is a bad movie, but. I didn't necessarily have a bad time watching it. It's just, it's really hard to overlook the terrible script and, and the one-dimensional characters when reflecting on it, though. So I just, I can't give it more than two stars. Yeah, fair. Uh, I, I, I literally just said this before. This is this is Matthew Riley's work, 100%. Uh, but it proves that his writing works better on page than it does on the screen. Uh, I, I had a lot of fun with it, but it's still a mess. Uh, I'm going to give it two and a half. <laughs> I'm glad you did give it two and a half. I think it it, it deserves like a two point two five average yeah. from us. It was it was still fun, <laughs> you know. And yeah, like you mentioned, probably not in the way that uh, they expected us to enjoy it. <laughs> well, this is what makes me think. You know what? I I reckon Stuart Beatty knew exactly what we were making when he rewrote the script. I don't reckon Matthew Riley did, but Beatty's like, well, this is all I can do with it, mate. So <laughs> good luck. <laughs> we we're on socials. We're on Twitter. We got Facebook, Instagram. The, I don't know if, what the translation for this around the world is, but in Australia, we, we call them the monkey bars. And this is, a, in a, oh, yeah. you know, talking about, like, like, could you do the monkey bars as a kid? You're a tall guy, I'm sure you I could do it. With, I could do it with two, two hands. hands. Two hands. I, I couldn't yeah. do it with two. I can't even do it with two oh, hands. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I certainly couldn't do it with one. Uh, yeah, I do remember once standing at the monkey bars. Um, it would have been maybe grade two or something, and someone put my pants down. So it was like an older, older student. Good laugh. Everyone got a good laugh out of it, but it was, um, oh, I still had underwear on, but um, yeah, very vivid memory for me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, it wasn't aiming on bringing up some trauma in this discussion, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think I handled so, it quite well. Uh, yeah. I'm so uncoordinated that I couldn't, I couldn't get the rhythm. I get one hand out and then just fall. So um, there is that moment where you are, you know, holding it with one hand. You're right. Yeah. All right. Well, um, it's been good. It's nice to have a chat about a newer sort of film. Uh, we do have a huge, we've got over 200 episodes, including our bonuses and, and things like that. So if you're interested in any of the Netflix original films, uh, 
go through our catalog, have a look. There might be something that you've seen and you'd be interested in listening to. We have our normal episodes back on Wednesday. So, um, yeah, this has been good fun. Been very good fun. And this would have been a movie that if I just sat and watched it on my own and never got a chance to talk about it with someone, I would have been disappointed. So I'm glad that we got the opportunity to, uh, to have a bit of fun with it. It was good. All right. And uh, I'll see you next week. See you then.